This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store if you feel inclined. So check it out. Today's guest is Aaron Spencer. Aaron is a marine ecologist and PhD candidate in biology at Florida International University studying great hammerhead sharks. She uses biologgers or animal mounted data collecting devices to record acceleration, speed, depth, and more, which helps us understand shark energy needs and movement patterns. Prior to working in Florida, she received her master's in ecology from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she studied red snapper fishery management and seafood mislabeling, and her bachelor's in ecology from the College of William and Mary, where she studied invasive lionfish management. She is a three-time National Geographic Explorer grantee and has given talks to groups of all ages through National Geographic, the World Bank, and TEDx, as well as many school groups. She's also an avid writer and has a children's book called The World of Coral Reefs that was published in March 2022. Welcome to the podcast, Erin. I'm happy to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I guess just to start off, I kind of like to ask everyone how they got their start in fishery science. So could you tell me sort of what inspired you and what your early research experience was like? Yeah, absolutely. So my first research experience was really as an undergraduate. I went to the College of Women Mary as an undergrad. And honestly, I I intended to be a bio major and then didn't really see myself Mm -hmm. aligning with so many. I I was in so many classes with pre-meds, which is great for them, but it's a very different sort of mentality. And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, maybe this is not for me. But then I was really fortunate that um, you know, the Virginia Institute of Marine Science or VIMS is associated with Women Mary. So mm-hmm. as an undergrad, I took this incredible field course in Watch Creek, Virginia, that was my first introduction to field work. And I was like, oh, this is, this yeah. is what I was for, right? <laughs> um, and I did, I did research as an undergrad. I worked as uh, an independent research project um, the, uh, that was a National Geographic Young Explorer grant on lionfish. And it was all about mm community responses to invasive lionfish, essentially how people uh, adapt their day-to-day life to handle Mm. invasive species. Um, And I I think it was a great project. It was such a good learning experience, but honestly, the biggest takeaway was how to and how to not structure a research project. Like my first grant, I completely mismanaged the money and spent all my money on diving and didn't uh, have any food money left for my last three yeah. weeks in the field. <laughs> so we ate a lot of lionfish. Um, <laughs> but no, so my background and like when I graduated, I went and I worked in uh, Washington, DC. And there I worked for Ocean Conservancy, which is a, an ocean nonprofit that mm-hmm. um, I've got nothing but great things to say about. And they 
uh, have a really strong presence with like federal fisheries management. And mm-hmm. I worked on the communication side, but I got to work directly with the scientists and the policy folks as they were uh, working with folks on Capitol Hill around fisheries management. So I learned so much there, um, mostly about how complicated, you know, I feel like with fisheries management, the more you get into it, the more complicated it gets. There's just yeah. kind of this never ending. There's many levels <laughs> of, of controversy and, and science and things to learn. So um, that's when I decided that I wanted to uh, continue to pursue that fisheries direction. Nice. That's awesome. And yeah, I can definitely relate to being surrounded by pre-meds when you're the, the <laughs> well, low. Listen, I, nothing, nothing against pre-meds. It's just, I felt like I was missing this big chunk of what I was searching, which was this ecology side. Mm-hmm. And the answer was that it was there. It just wasn't, I wasn't exposed to it in my first couple of years as an undergrad. Like I found that in those upper level classes where you really start to narrow down and you're with other people that have the same interests as you. Mm-hmm. But my first foray into biology where in, in, in school, where it's these huge lecture halls and everyone is like <laughs> yeah. eyes on the med school prize. Mm-hmm. I, I was really overwhelmed, you know, and, and um, I didn't know that it was for me. So I was really fortunate that to be able to find um, my footing uh, later on in my degree. Yeah. It's excellent that you had, you know, VIMS available to you and could start to explore that direction. I had a, yeah, kind of a similar route where wasn't sure what I wanted to do necessarily and being surrounded by pre-meds was confusing, but I got out in the field for a marine science thing and that sort of sealed the deal for me. So definitely yeah. relate to all of that. It, it does make such a difference and it's such a special and, um, in many ways, unique experience. People get out in the fields in such an early age in mm-hmm. undergrad. And I, I don't take that. I was lucky. Right. And I don't take that for granted. Yeah. And I feel I've had a lot of opportunities to talk to younger students and so many folks feel like they don't have a space in the field because mm-hmm. they don't feel comfortable in those first yeah. biology and chemistry classes. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time being like, please just stick it out and get, yeah, exactly. Power through. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I could rant about that all day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay. Well, I guess we can move on. Um, So you received your master's from the university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I was curious if you could describe your master's research for us. Yeah. When I was at Ocean Conservancy, um, we worked on a lot of different topics, but one thing that I was particularly interested in watching their fisheries team work on was red snapper management. Hmm, Um, (laughs) Most controversial, depending on where you're talking about. um, Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I hear a lot about that. Yeah. Sometimes occasionally I joke that like, there's, are there any other fish in the sea? Cause we spend so (laughs) much time talking about red snapper, but, um, so when I, I went to uh, my, to do my master's with John Bruno at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and it was kind of, my chapters took two different approaches looking at red snapper. Mm-hmm. Um, and one was looking at uh, seafood mislabeling. So using uh, DNA barcoding, genetic testing to test seafood fillets, and especially around red snapper. And we know that red snapper is highly, it has a higher rate of mislabeling than mm-hmm. some other species. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot that we still need to understand about the like 
distribution and frequency of mislabeling. So I did, um, I took samples from North Carolina down to Florida, and I did that to align with the, the South Atlantic Fisheries Management Council boundary, right? Like the management of the Southeast. Mm-hmm. And I stopped at sushi restaurants and grocery stores and uh, seafood markets and took yeah. samples. And it was really, it was an incredible uh, seafood road trip. I'd like, I know I'm like, that sounds like, (laughs) oh, it was great. Honestly, it was great. So I would go to these vendors and, you know, ask, buy a sample, right? Buy a filet. And of course you're not, you're just a customer, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, then I would take what I needed for the DNA testing, which is a really small piece of, of the filet or whatever it was. And then I would cook up whatever else I had for dinner. Mm-hmm. And, um, which is funny because then a couple weeks later when I did the testing, I could go back and see what I was actually eating. Oh, that's so um, funny. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, the results were, uh, unfortunately not surprising. Um, yeah. it was a 72.6% mislabeling rate. So oh, wow. almost, yeah, almost three quarters of our samples uh, were mislabeled. And in the sushi restaurants, it was a hundred percent of the time <laughs> wow. and it was mostly tilapia, which, um, you know, that's, it's mm-hmm. problematic for a number of reasons. It's not just defrauding the customer. Um, it's also like, if you're trying to make informed decisions, about, like if you're using mm-hmm. that Monterey Bay seafood watch app, for example, and you're trying to yes. pick, Oh, this is a sustainable seafood choice. Well, that's all undermined if the seafood's not <laughs> what they say it is. Mm-hmm. And you know, part of the issue is that it's so hard to pin down, uh, where that's happening. And often, you know, it can happen at any stage of, uh, that chain, right? Yeah. There's so many different junctures along the kind of supply chain that that could happen. Right. Right. So likely, you know, the restaurant that you're ordering from, they probably don't know. Right. And there's a lot of really interesting developments like in technology about how we can do like more rapid testing of fillets and, and whatnot. But I also had a couple of, you know, really good experiences like there's a, a fishing a, a seafood market down in Hollywood Florida which is funny because mm-hmm. now that I live in Florida I actually lived less than a mile from this oh yeah place. And it's called the Delaware chicken farm which is kind mm-hmm. of misleading because that's it's funny place. <laughs> right but I went there at the time red snapper wasn't in season um and I went there and asked for some red snapper and this guy was like oh ma'am red snapper is not in season in the Atlantic right now he's like what I can offer you all these other options. He's like, tell me what you're making. I'll give you suggestions. And of course I couldn't tell him that like, <laughs> oh no, I, I really need the rest. Yeah. Of it's like, I was trying to trick you. <laughs> right. But I was so impressed and excited about how many people I met along the way who really like were trying to educate people about that. There's so many other different species that are local and in season that you could be eating. And unfortunately that's not reflected in the results of the data because that's not, you know, we were, we were only testing that snapper fillet. So um, that, that was something that was, that was kind of fascinating. Uh, And then the other part of my master's was looking at the recreational snapper grouper uh, Mm -hmm. fishing industry, uh, the, sorry. Um, was looking at recreational snapper grouper fishing yeah, and it was in partnership with the South Atlantic fisheries management council who mm-hmm. developed this app called my fish count. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it's a, a tool that anglers can use to track their catch and a bunch of other metrics, but that, that can also um, be, u- it be used as data to help understand the status of these fisheries. Mm. 
and we did a survey uh, of, of anglers. It was kind of in this early stage of launching the app. This was back in, I think, 2017, 2018, mm-hmm. and just getting a sense of, is this something that you would use? Like, what, what are some of the things that would motivate you to use the app? Um, what are some concerns that you might have? Uh, what, you know, that all sorts of kind of getting, oh, and then some also uh, questions about usability, yeah. right? Like, you know, if you go into the app, does this feel um, usable? Does it feel like something that you could quickly do on board? Would you do it back on, on the dock? Um, and what was cool about that was that um, there were so many other either states or management councils around the country that are doing these similar sort of reporting apps and also other researchers who are trying to understand them. So um, I got some really incredible help from Chelsea Crandall at University of Florida that was working mm-hmm. on kind of a broader umbrella of, of doing surveys across all these different apps. Um, so that was really eye-opening also to see those results and see like, you know, how people feel about the apps. That's so cool. And I mean, I think that sort of speaks to how the human side of fisheries is so important. Um, Cause you know, I think that's sort of what attracted me to this field when I was getting started is that it's neat that you can do like in-depth ecological research, but you can also, you know, impact people's lives and interact with them to try to make things better. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I feel like I'm probably preaching a little bit to the choir here, but, you know, it's impossible to talk about (laughs) fisheries management and ocean Mm -hmm. management without talking about people. It's just, you know, it's just impossible. And so, you know, I've, I've such respect for that social science side of also understanding people's motivations. And I learned so much and even developing those questions alongside the folks at the fisheries management council and just reading other papers of like, you know, the psych, some of the psychology behind how people mm-hmm. interact with the ecosystem. And um, it was, it was a very cool learning experience. And also, uh, again, just reinforced how complicated it is, right? Yes. That there's so many stakeholders at the table and there's so many motivations and um, trying to balance all of that is really a like science and an art. <laughs> So yeah, I like no, that's so much so respect true. for the managers to, who, are, who are tackling that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just so many inputs and trying to compromise between everyone's wants and needs and values. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that I don't have to do that. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I, I agree. And that's actually, as I was, my original thought was I was going to go get my master's and then try to come back and either like, and work in policy in yes. DC, I was thinking I was trying going to try to go for the federal side of policy, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I'm so appreciative of that experience that I had and the connections that I had, but then I also independent of my chapters was able to do a lot of field research with my advisor in the Galapagos and assist with some, um, physiology studies down mm-hmm. there with invertebrates. And, I decided through that process, I was like, I don't, I don't think I'm done with the field research yet. And I, and that's when I decided that I wanted to do my PhD. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's a perfect segue for me, but we can move on to your PhD research. So from what I understand, you're studying great hammerhead sharks at Florida international. (laughs) And I'd love it if you could kind of walk us through 
the questions you want to answer in your doctoral research and also mm -hmm. the methods you're using to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a real left turn from where I was <laughs> yeah. in my master's. When in my master's, all my samples, you just go to a Publix and get a filet. And then here, somehow I'm working on great hammerhead sharks. <laughs> yeah, that's a jump. A um, but no, it was, it was kind of serendipitous. I think there's so many stories that I've heard that sound like this, where you think you're going to go one direction and then by chance you end up going in a different direction. And mm -hmm. I decided I wanted to do uh, my PhD while I was working in the Galapagos. I knew that I wanted to do field work and, and live in the location where my field work field sites were. Mm -hmm. And, but I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do. So I read a ton of papers, just the abstracts, and then yes. I sorted them kind of gut reaction into three categories, which is very interesting, somewhat interesting and not at all interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at what all the papers had in common in that very interesting folder. So it seemed all of the ones that ended up there had something to do with predator prey dynamics and yeah. you know, across all sorts of different types of species and levels of predation. And then while I was there, I happened to meet another researcher who was in the Galapagos from Florida International University. Mm -hmm. And he was there um, doing research on sharks over at Darwin and Wolf, a kind of remote part of the Galapagos. Yeah. And then um, he turned out to be my advisor. <laughs> so it That's was awesome. like <laughs> perfect timing. Yeah. So I work now with Yanni Papasamatu in the predator ecology lab, mm -hmm. predator ecology and conservation lab at Florida International University. And this particular project is looking at the movement and behavior of great hammerhead sharks. And, you know, great hammerheads are super well recognized, um, mm -hmm. obviously, because they've got that big, beautiful cephalofoil and a lot of people love them. But yeah. uh, because they're so big and wide ranging and sensitive, they're very hard to study in a lab setting, right? It's not as simple mm -hmm. <laughs> as taking yeah. them and putting them in a, a chamber in the lab. So um, there's still a lot that we don't know about their kind of fine scale movements. So we're using biologgers or those animal mounted data collecting devices mm -hmm. to look at um, the speed, acceleration, depth, temperature, and a bunch of other metrics about how hammerheads move. So these tags will go on and stay on for about 24 to 48 hours. It's a really finite moment in time, um, mm -hmm. but the loggers will take up to 50 readings per second. So oh, we're wow. getting this super, super fine scale view. Yeah. Um, and the, the biologgers are attached with a clamp on the dorsal fin because great hammerheads have that big, beautiful, very sturdy dorsal that we can mm -hmm. attach that to. Um, and it's attached, it, the float itself is attached with a galvanic release. So it's a material that starts dissolving as soon as oh. it hits salt water. So after a certain, you know, period of time, about 24 hours, it'll pop up to the surface. And then um, with a satellite tag, we'll get a signal for where to find that tag in the ocean, which mm -hmm. typically takes way longer. But from that, we can to kind of figure out all sorts of fascinating things about these sharks, right? We can look at not just, you know, uh, what depths are they at? You know, what are they doing at certain times of the day, et cetera? But then we can piece together parts of these data sets and uh, answer bigger questions. We can like use magnetism, acceleration, and speed to build these 3D pseudo tracks, essentially mm -hmm. tracks of, of where they are in the water column and what they're doing, and then um, kind of identify 
burst speed events or potential foraging events. And mm -hmm. um, we could also take the size of the shark and do a number of calculations and look at speed and calculate the estimated uh, calories they would need throughout their day um, mm -hmm. to, to swim at the speeds that they're swimming. And that also helps us figure out how much food they need to consume, right? Yeah. And this is also really important, especially with uh, great hammerheads being ectotherms and metabolism is greatly affected by temperature. Um, understanding their caloric needs is important as we're kind of predicting what might happen in warming ocean conditions, right? Because as mm -hmm. temperature gets warmer, their metabolism speeds up and eventually they're, you know, just like all animals have a thermal range. Eventually we're going to get to uncomfortable temperatures high in their thermal range. And, and just what does that mean for range shifts mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. So it's really building a lot of this foundational knowledge about movement and behavior of these sharks to then answer bigger questions. Wow. That's so cool. And I think, yeah, that might be one of the first times that I've heard about, I guess, integrating um, research on movement and looking at energetics using some of those same tools. Because um, I'm a bit of like a movement ecology, spatial ecology nerd. So that really is oh, interesting cool. to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And what yeah. is that um, field work like? I'm sure, you know, I think everyone loves to hear field stories, but could you just kind of paint a picture about what your field days are like? Yeah. So <clears throat> our field days, uh, you know, we do our work off of South Florida around Miami and West Palm beach, mm -hmm. and then also up to, uh, on, on the Gulf side off of Sarasota with Moat Marine Lab. And we use uh, drum lines to fish for large sharks. And it's essentially a weight with one large hook, a baited hook, and, you know, the most important thing is the safety of the animal and the safety of the people. So mm -hmm. there's a lot that goes into, you know, making sure that those drum lines don't sit for too long so that the animals aren't on the line for too long. And, mm -hmm. um, a lot of training that goes into the shark handling side of things. And we work with a crew about, of about, uh, probably four or five of us, um, that will work up these animals. And because I'm part of a larger lab, it's awesome that there's a lot of different questions that we're answering in the lab. Mm -hmm. So for example, one of my um, good friends, uh, Laura Garcia Barcia works on bull sharks. Yeah. Um, so if we are fishing and we get a bull shark, we're taking samples that are helping to answer her questions like mm -hmm. clips and muscle. Um, we get a great hammerhead. We can put this biologger out. There's a, one of my other uh, lab mates, Jesse Quinlan is studying uh, anal fins of sharks. So we take anal fin measurements of, mm -hmm. of everything. So you know, there's a lot of data that's collected. The idea is that we're never uh, having a shark on the line that that isn't building to answer one of these questions in the lab. Um, yeah. So, and then the the it's kind of when we work up the sharks, it's like a pit crew at a racetrack. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's very fast. Uh, we the, the hope is to obviously keep the shark by the boat as for as little time as possible mm. and we never bring them out of the water. They're always in the water. And, uh, you know, we, it's, it's very fast. Everything happens really quickly, but, um, you know, I am very grateful for the team that I work with. They taught me, you know, I, I've, everything I know about shark handling has come from my, my peers and colleagues. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't come in knowing how to handle <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so I'm really grateful for that. And I also, there's just so much um, attention to detail and training that's required 
Um, so I feel very safe uh, and trust, uh, you know, everyone that we work with, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. No, that's so neat. It sounds like, you know, you guys are kind of a well-oiled machine and it's cool that, you know, it's such a collaborative effort um, and that anytime you guys do or you are handling a shark, it's, you know, benefiting science. Um, uh-huh. So that's really cool. Um, and I guess in addition to all of this <laughs> that you're doing, um, you're also a Nat Geo Explorer and an oh. <laughs> avid science communicator. So I'd love to talk more about kind of your most recent SciComm achievement since you just published a children's book. Yes, um, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could you tell me week. more about, I guess, what your book's called, what's it about, and um, what inspired you to write a children's book? Uh, absolutely. So uh, my book, The World of Coral Reefs, uh, just came out last week, and mm-hmm. it's been in the works for years, which is just wild to think about because, you know, we started working on this book in 2019, and it was with the folks uh, at Story Publishing who are just yes. incredible people to work with. The, the idea of the book was to write a nonfiction children's book It mm-hmm. still had the that was that didn't feel like an encyclopedia, right? That yeah. Illustrations that made it feel kind of almost like a storybook, but with really hard science in it. And I mean, hard, not as in difficult to understand. I mean, like, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, I'm introducing terms that I talk about with students at, at the university, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, whenever I do outreach events through Skype a scientist or, or other kind of classroom visits, I am always, uh, overwhelmed at the level of science kids understand and bring to Mm -hmm. the table. And the last thing I wanted to do was underestimate what kids could understand. Yeah, And it's part of our job as science communicators to take that information and present it in the most appropriate way. And not necessarily to dumb down the information, but just to present it in a way that's really clear for your intended audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we talk about zooxanthellae and mutualistic relationships and invertebrates versus vertebrates. And it was a really, really fun and challenging experience to, to write that. I mean, I, I have an easier time writing a like eight page proposal <laughs> yeah. um, than I did writing this children's book. But um, so far the reception has been great and and people are I'm very touched that what the feedback that I'm hearing is what I intended right people are like oh I'm Mm -hmm. happy that it's real science and that we're you know that that that's paired with these incredible illustrations and that was this wonderful illustrator Alexander Neonakis who's just wildly talented and Mm -hmm. really brings that those words to life and so yeah it's available um uh, on Amazon or in local bookstores. And I'm hoping to do a lot of outreach events around here in South Florida. We're actually going to be, um, at the, a couple of the libraries around here and some local museums. So I'm excited to bring this book to the local community as well, because I'm very fortunate living down in Miami, like we're, we're close to a coral reef tract. And so we're able to apply a lot of the lessons in this book to the South Florida ecosystem, which is fun. Oh, that's so cool. And yeah, I mean, I wish there'd been a book like this when I was a kid. <laughs> it just seems like, you know, it's exciting um, to get kids interested in this stuff and give them, yeah, like you said, 
you know, the real information. Because in the few times that I've presented or given talks to school groups or students or even um, like younger kids, I feel like they respond so well to it and they want to hear about the science. And they get so excited and will ask the most like off the wall questions that you might not even be considering. And so I think starting that thought process for them early with a book like this is just really cool to me. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. No, I, I appreciate it. And um, I am excited to see where this book heads. And I've got a lot of other ideas for hopefully more um, things like this in the future. So um yeah, I'm, you know, it just came out. So I'm still kind of in this overwhelmed, like, wow, I can't believe it's out there. <laughs> yeah, it. it's so exciting. I know we'll have to include a link to it um, with the episode so people can check it out. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that, that <laughs> would be great. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'm also really grateful to some of my friends and family that have, that have bought it for their uh, kids. And, you know, my sister-in-law got one for her one-year-old baby. Yeah. And I was like, it might be a little old for her, but I hope she grows into it and yeah. enjoy all the pictures. Right. Like, but you know, it's never, never too young to start learning about coral polyps. You know, Very true. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I think that's all I have for the main part of the interview. Um, so we've reached the five questions that we ask every guest at the end of each episode. And to start those off, what is your favorite fish? You know, this one is so hard. I feel like yeah. I probably always say that, but this one's so hard. And I, it has to be for me, a deep sea species. You know, mm-hmm. if I, in another life, I would have tried to work in the deep sea. I think mm-hmm. it's just the absolute coolest. And, um, I think the deep sea lizard fish is one oh, of my favorites. Nice. So they look like some of beetle beetlejuice, you know, they're yeah, wild. That's a great pick. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the deep sea lizard fish is my, it's my choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, that, or the coelacanth. I mean, the coelacanth oh, is another that's, good one too. Yeah. That's a really good one. And yeah. um, <laughs> one of my all time favorite books, A Fish Caught in Time is about the coelacanth. And every couple of years I revisit it and um, I'd re- recommend that book to anyone who might be interested. And in, if you haven't already read it, but it's just what a wild story. Not only is the fish so cool, but like, yeah, that's true. That kind of history so around it. And, yeah, yeah. The fact so that cool. everyone thought they were gone. <laughs> gone. Like, oh, surprise. Yeah. Or like, oh, that can't be possible. <laughs> yeah. So, that's time. awesome. Yeah, those are great choices. <laughs> I definitely second both Thanks. of those. <laughs> so. um, okay, so next up, it is, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? This is also a difficult one, I think. I know, I know. Cause there's, there's experiences that you have that are like, wow, this is so fun. Or I, mostly the feeling that I have when I think of like, what's my favorite memory is just these moments where you're like, I can't believe how lucky I am to be able to work in this ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like not, we're, we're very lucky um, to be face to face with, marine organisms. And Mm -hmm. I think my favorite, and this one's kind of easy, like you're going to listen to this and be like, of course, everyone will know (laughs) the experience. But when we we were in a liveaboard in the Galapagos doing these trials um, Mm -hmm. for um, these respirometry trials, and I was running a trial through the night and I watched the sunrise 
like while these trials are running, I'm just like sitting and waiting. And then mm-hmm. I watched the sunrise, like in the middle of the ocean in the Galapagos and oh, wow. the temperature was perfect. And I was there alone. Like everyone else was asleep. And it was just this, like, take your breath away moment of like, mm-hmm. I cannot believe I'm here and that I get to do this. And, um, it's, it's not something that I take for granted. And, uh, you know, I, it's off, but this is also a job, right? So there's plenty of days where we're out on the boat. We were just out on the boat last weekend and the conditions were kind of rough and you're getting mm-hmm. kind of seasick and you're just like, ah, I just, I'm ready for this day <laughs> to be over. And, um, but then you just have to take a step back and be like, uh, this is still remarkable <laughs> that, mm-hmm. you, that you're here and able to do this. So I think of that moment in, in the Galapagos is this kind of, that was part of what made me realize that I wasn't done with field work. And again, I returned to this, like, oh, of course, like, of course you would love field work if you're watching the sunrise <laughs> in the Galapagos. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's, that's gotta be my favorite memory. Yeah. So that's an excellent memory. And I think, you know, a lot of the people I've spoken to kind of have moments like that, regardless of what system they work in, you know, like, fresh water, salt water, estuaries, anything, they'll say like, I had this one field memory where it sort of just like affirmed everything I'd chosen to do. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and I mean, it sort of, you know, justifies all the time spent coding or writing proposals, and things like that. Oh, yeah. No, well, that's, that's the other thing I feel like whenever I chat with folks like students kids and they're like you know what's a day in the life of a marine scientist I show three things Mm -hmm. I show a picture of like walking off the dock in Bonaire for a dive and it's like beautiful you know it's yeah it's like a postcard (laughs) sunny not a cloud in the sky and then I show a video of being in a like 12 foot boat in Fiji in the middle of a storm where Mm -hmm. we're we're, we're in the boat for like three hours and the conditions are so rough that we literally have to wedge ourselves in between the side of the boat and the supplies. So I show that video and I'm like, <laughs> some days it looks like this, but then the last thing I show is a picture of my, my laptop. Yep, <laughs> so exactly. like, it looks like this, you yep. know, like to do, you know, you gotta write a lot of grants. You have to spend a lot of time in R, but you know, it is, I actually, as I've gotten more and more into this field, I love working in R mm-hmm. and it's so fun when you're working with your own fun is not the right word. Let me say it's so rewarding when you're yeah. working with your own <laughs> data, mm-hmm. um, because you, you know, you were there from like, you collected the data. Like when, when I run these data sets from a hammerhead that we've tagged, I'm like, I remember this animal and I can see it's just so you, you feel like it's, it's so personal because you can pinpoint the animal that this, this data came from and mm. look at what they were doing. And, um, again, I feel like I've said this a couple of times, but it's something that I don't take for granted. And, and I really don't take it lightly to be collecting data from, from a, um, large endangered organism like that. Right. I mean, it's something that this, or this data has to go to towards our understanding to help preserve this species. Otherwise, mm-hmm. It, it is not right for us to take it. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I, having that additional context makes the hours coding an R a yeah. little easier. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you um, know what you're working towards and you have kind of that deep understanding of 
the data and where it came from and yeah, kind of absolutely why <laughs> some of the frustrating debugging and stuff is worth it. So yeah, exactly. Awesome. Um, so next up, this one may be somewhat similar, but it's what is your dream job and or location? Yeah, I I really am struggling with this one because yeah. I there's a couple of places like I would love, you know, I look at these incredible videos of people working with like Greenland sharks. I'm like, that would be so cool. Mm-hmm. But I also I know myself and <laughs> I am a solid tropical marine person. Yeah. Um so I think I would love to work in um, some of the more remote like atolls. Like I'd love to go to the Northern line islands or, um, you know, some other places in the, in the Pacific that are, are just further away from uh, like large cities and and lots of development. I mean, it's pretty Mm -hmm. wild when we tag off of Miami. I mean, we're like half a mile off of Miami beach. I can like see yachts going around. So I, I, and it's obviously just a different environment. So I, I, I would love to do some work in the more kind of remote. Mm-hmm. I'll say the Northern line islands. That's what I'll say. Yeah. That's awesome. So next up is if money was no object, what is one project you would like to work on? So, okay. If money was no object, I would take a man submersible <laughs> and go to the deep deep sea. Yeah. <laughs> and um and I'd have to come up with the research question cuz right now I just have the experience mm-hmm. that I would want. Um Yeah, exactly. But I just, you know, I whenever whenever the Nautilus mm-hmm. goes on their expeditions and have their live stream of their ROV, I mean, I just I can't get enough. Yeah. Right? It's glued to the screen. And what's remarkable, oh, I know what I would do. If I had all the money in the world, mm-hmm. I would go in a man submersible to a whale fall oh, and I would sit there and cool. watch that's, and I would, yeah. you know, I record and I would ID and I take all kinds of stuff. And you might say, oh, well, can't you just send an ROV down there? Why does it need to be a man submersible? And that's a great question. Um, that what I would just but I have all the money in the world. So why not? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's so cool. That is a great idea. Whale falls are so cool. <laughs> it's just it would just, yeah. It would be amazing and, to be able to just sit there and like watch it happen. And it would be even better if you could have some, like, you know, here at FIU, we have uh, the Aquarius uh, house, like uh, Marine station. that's like underwater. So you can mm-hmm. go and, and do saturation. And it's only in about, it's in about 20 or 30 meet. no, 20 or I don't know how deep it is down like 60 feet or so. Yeah. Um, but if you could have some sort of like housing that you could stay in for a long yeah, time. Yeah. Like a deep cool. sea Aquarius. That would a be deep sea Aquarius. Deep. I mean, you're getting back to the surface would be a real journey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you'd do that. That's something for someone else to figure out, but that would be cool. Cause you would want to see it over a longer period of time to see how the communities change the whale falls, but yeah. Awesome. And that brings us to our last question. So if there was one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head just automatically, what would that be? That's, I love this question. And the first mm-hmm. thing that I thought of was is actually bringing 
this back to earlier when I was talking about being a student in biology classes and, and worried that this wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And I, the longer that I work in marine science and conservation, if I could like preach this to everyone, it would be that you do not have to be a marine scientist to like help in marine conservation. I, mm-hmm. So many younger folks that I talk to are like, I want to work on the ocean. And then, and the way I know how to do that is to become a marine biologist. Right. And you're like, Mm. you could, you could apply any skill or interest that you have to helping the ocean. Right. Mm -hmm. You can, if, you know, lawyers, policy makers, um, like, uh, finance folks, like creative folks, um, artists, like musicians, there's just, it, it, I think it's all too often that people think that there's this one path mm-hmm. of becoming a marine biologist and, and getting your PhD, which is kind of funny that I'm saying that because I yeah, guess exactly. I'm right like, now, we're both in that boat. But. I know, I know. <laughs> it's like it's kind of uh, odd for me to say it that way, but um, but that's just not the only path at all. It's mm-hmm. it's not even in some ways like the main path, right? It's just part of this larger mosaic of all of these different skills that we mm-hmm. need um, to, to furthering ocean conservation. Yeah. Oh, I actually, I do have another thing mm-hmm. and that just, that I just thought of. Yeah, go for it. Um, the other thing that I would say, and this is really talking to the folks that work in our field. And it's something that I am working through all the time, which is the more you get into studying the ocean and conservation and, and the animals in the ocean, Um, and this is not a secret to anyone that works in these ecosystems, but it can feel really bleak, um, especially Mm -hmm. when we talk about in context of climate change and that's not just marine systems, obviously that's freshwater systems, terrestrial systems. I mean, it's something everyone's going through Mm -hmm. and also there are so many problems that it can be hard to figure out where to focus your attention. Mm -hmm. Like. I, I think that I'm not, I know I'm not alone in this because I've had other conversations where it's like, I'm here in my little corner, like working on biologers on great hammerhead sharks yeah. and I look around and I'm like, there are so many problems in the ocean that need help. And then you're mm-hmm. like, there's so many problems in the world that, yeah. <laughs> that need attention and help. And, and it can be, it can make your head spin mm-hmm. and it make you feel like, am I doing enough? Am I helping enough? Mm-hmm. And I think the the thing that I'm constantly trying to remind myself and as we're talking, you know, to friends and colleagues about this is like, you know, you are helping in your own corner of the world and you can do what you, you can only do what you can do. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, when I look at like, for example, marine debris, where I'm like, wow, there's so much plastic in the ocean. Right. But yeah. I get to see how many incredible colleagues and researchers are working on marine debris. And it gives me so much hope because I'm like, okay, great. I look at all these wonderful people tackling this problem. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm choosing to tackle this other problem and that's okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everyone's in their own areas, but that just, it, it takes everyone and all kinds and just to be kind to yourself and just do what you can. And then, um, and that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, you know, no one person can do everything, but just kind of striving to make an improvement somewhere is it justifies the whole thing. So yeah, I think that's a very wise insight. And it's super true, especially, you know, 
yeah, for anyone in aquatic sciences generally, I think there's so many things to yeah. tackle, but there's a lot of good people out there to tackle those issues. So yeah, absolutely. That's what keeps me positive about it as I see all of the, you know, just incredibly smart people attacking all of these problems. And, mm -hmm. you know, it makes me feel like at least we're guaranteed to make progress. So right, right. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's, it's wonderful to build the, like this community is wonderful. Um, and every time I have a conversation with a new connection or I go to a conference or whatever, I'm just like, wow, there's so many cool things that people are studying and important things that people are studying mm -hmm. and really innovative ways that people are approaching it. And, and that's not to say that everyone agrees on the approach for everything. Right. But yeah. um, it just, it, it blows your mind when you realize how many people are going out every day trying to answer these, these different questions. And, um, and hopefully we're all moving. I mean, we're all moving forward towards the same goal, which is to try and, you know, preserve these resources, keep them around for a long time and, and, um, a better planet. Mm -hmm. So it's like a really cheesy way to end that. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's perfect. <laughs> That's a great place to leave off. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed hearing about everything you have done and, and are doing. Um, and I'm definitely going to have to pick up a copy of that book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Hannah. It's all, I, I love this podcast so much because, you know, when you scroll down through all the episodes, right, you see familiar faces and names mm -hmm. and then all sorts of new people that, and, and that's what, what I was alluding to too, about like just learning about what everyone is doing in their own corner of the world. And so thank you so much for all the work that you and the rest of the fisheries podcast team puts into to this work. And yeah, it's, it's been a blast to be here. If you want to find out more information or get a hold of Erin, you can reach her by email at etspencer at email.wm.edu and learn more about her research in science communication on Twitter at etspencer, on Instagram at Erin T. Spencer, and on her website, www.erintspencer.com. If you would like to get a hold of me, you can find me and the rest of the hosts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or by old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers, available on Teespring. I'm Hannah. Thank you for listening to the 172nd episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, don't be discouraged. Anyone with any skill set can help tackle the big problems. Mm -hmm.